My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hello and welcome to She Starts It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that celebrates incredible, inspiring women who are at the top of their industries, from food to fashion, law to politics. This is a podcast about celebrating female entrepreneurship, power and potential, exploring what it really takes to be a trailblazer in today's world. I'm your host, entrepreneur and journalist Angelica Malin, and every week I'll be asking a new guest for their three career turning points and answering the question we've all wondered at some point, how did she start it? She Starts It with Angelica Malin is kindly sponsored by Bloom and Wild. If you're like me and you love having fresh flowers around you while you're relaxing at home, but I hate having to carry them around with me all day, and who's ever home long enough to arrange a delivery anymore? Bloom and Wild have got us covered. They're the UK's top-rated online florist, and they deliver right to your letterbox. So you can get fresh buds ready to flower, they can last up to 10 days, and you don't even have to worry about being home for the delivery. They'll give you £10 off your first order with the code SHE. Straight and simple, S-H-E. They offer free next day delivery up to 10pm. They ship across the UK, France and Germany, so they've got you covered. So head on over to blueandwild.com, use the offer code SHE so they know I sent you, and treat yourself. My guest today on She Starst It needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Cherie Blair is a leading human rights lawyer, philanthropist and committed campaigner for women's rights. In 2008, she established the Cherie Blair Foundation, inspired by her experiences of meeting women across the world during her time in Downing Street as the wife of former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. The foundation empowers women to build small and growing businesses in low and middle income countries so they can contribute to their economies and have a stronger voice in their societies. In 1995, Cherie became a Queen's Council and in 2000, she became a founding member of Matrix Chambers, a groundbreaking legal practice focusing on human rights and public law. In 2011, she set up the Omnia Strategy, a pioneering international firm providing the opportunity for barristers, solicitors and non-lawyers to work collaboratively to provide strategic counsel to governments, corporates and private clients. Cherie, thank you so much for joining me today. What an honour. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. <laughs> and in particular, not saying as what once I was introduced by somebody who decided I was the former wife of the Prime Minister. <laughs> So got a bit muddled up there. I can imagine. (laughs) Has that been frustrating for you ever, being like the association? Do people presume that you aren't a career woman in your own right? Well, I think that um, certainly um, when Tony first became leader of the opposition, they did an interview with me and I said I'd grown up being the daughter of someone. Now I seem to find myself the wife of someone. And I anticipated eventually I'd be the mother of someone. Mm. But actually, yeah, I do also have my own career. A fantastic, yeah. a fantastic career but, at that. Um, you know, no, it's not frustrating. Of course, I'm very proud of all that my husband has achieved and also very proud of what I managed to achieve. And funnily enough, 
the one time it was a bit frustrating was when we went into Downing Street because I still remain the only female spouse because I think, to be fair, I mean, Philip May still holds down a full-time job, but the only female spouse of a prime minister holding down a full-time job. My two successors both did part-time work and Downing Street just didn't really understand the fact that I wasn't instantly on tap to do what they considered was the wife's job Mm. and so it took a bit bit of time for them to understand that I did have my own career. When your husband came into power was there a bit of an assumption that you might give up your job? Yes. Yeah. Yes but there was never any question of that because I figured just because he changed his job Mm. it didn't mean that I should be changing my job which I'd spent by that time over 25 years getting to become a QC which Mm. I'd become a QC in 1994 so this is only three years on into a QC I mean why on earth would I give that up just because my husband's job had changed Mm. and and eventually they accepted that Mm. so diving straight in I ask all of my guests to give to me three career points that they feel were very important to them and they look back on and they were turning points in their careers could you tell me um your first turning point that you'd like to talk about well I think I'd first of all go back to the beginning of my career Uh, as a lawyer and to my early life because I was I was brought up in Liverpool in an ordinary working class family there but we were slightly different in that my father was a an actor and he uh, became famous as a famous son of Liverpool as one of the very early comedy soap shows for want of something better called Till Death Do Us Part. It also of course led him when I was eight to actually effectively abandon my mother and my sister and I. And so my mum was left to bring us up with the help of her mother-in-law, my grandmother. Both my mum and my grandma had, for different reasons, left school at 14. And they were absolutely obsessed with making sure that my sister and I had all the education opportunities that they had been denied. And it turned out I was quite a clever girl. And so as I went through primary school and was one of only three children in the 70 kids in my primary school year who actually passed the 11 plus and got into my grammar school and then at the grammar school did did very well. I got into this idea that so long as I worked hard and was good at what I did, there was nothing that could hold me back. Mm. And, and that was certainly something that took me very easily, quite easily anyway, through school and uh, getting uh, to go to LSE, London School of Economics, where I got the top first in the University of London in law and then going to Lincoln's Inn as a barrister and becoming top of the bar finals. And it was only when I then had to do the next thing that you had to do after you've done all your exams, you then do a year's pupillage, we call it. It's like an apprenticeship going around with a a lawyer in in a barrister in a barrister's chambers. And it was only then that I suddenly discovered they hadn't told me the whole truth, the nuns and my my mother. And that actually it wasn't just about being good at what you do and working hard. There was a problem. And that problem was that I was a girl. Mm. Uh, And so at the end of my year's pupillage, my pupil master said to me, Cherie, you know, there's only one vacancy here. We've got two candidates. One's a boy and one's a girl. So obviously we'll go for the better bet, the boy. And obviously, by the times, that seemed like the the better bet. But it was certainly a big shock to me. And actually, it didn't prove to be a a terribly 
long-term decision for the chambers either because here I am 40 years on, still a lawyer, mm. and the boy buggered off after seven years and did something else. He was, of course, Tony Blair, and so I suppose he did quite well. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So if you like that, that turn now... To be fair, my pupil master found me another place to start my practice and, and was very supportive in many ways. And it also taught me something else, I suppose, which was the power of having someone who is not just your mentor, but also your sponsor who can mm. help you. It's very important in building up a professional career. I think it's important in, in any business. And, and that idea of mentoring and of the power of mentoring stayed with me both during my legal career when I tried to be a mentor and help to other particularly female lawyers coming up behind me, but also when I went into found the foundation and one of the pillars of what the foundation do is still mentoring women in business. The turning point was the shock setting my mind to doing something and it not actually happening. Mm. Not in the way that you expected. Um, yeah. But it did happen in, in a different way. And it, and it taught me a lesson, I think, has also taught me. I, I went on in, in my career, starting off very much doing uh, employment disputes. And, and it was a time when the law was changing, the Sex Discrimination Act had come in. And I ended up making a career doing a lot of cases about equality and discrimination. So, you know, that that uh, that passion partly came from a sense that I'd experienced, I, I don't like to say discrimination, but just the way the way things were at the time were not very women-friendly. Yeah. Now, it's not the case now, and I wouldn't want to put anyone off as a young woman going to the bar. Um, I don't think today going to the bar, uh, being a female, is, is a disadvantage. I do think that there are other disadvantages which mainly come from lack of financial backup and resources Mm. Um, but that's a different story well I was going to ask you how you think that compares to the experience now of training to be a a female lawyer I imagine there are a lot more women I think it's about half 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 an hour of female lawyers I think in the actual profession it's less than half half certainly less half half in the bar but certainly if you look at the law schools I mean when I went to LSE there was a class of about 70 and only 12 of us were lawyer, were female. I mean, it was it was much a smaller group. My daughter studied law. You know, a class of over 50% of them are, are women. And that is certainly, um, it's a well-trod route now, I think, into the profession. And no one would, no one would say, as they did say when I was looking for pupillage, things like, well, we don't take women in these chambers because the clients don't really like it mm-hmm. or oh well, we would take a woman but we've got one already and how could we possibly have two because then we might have a, a problem if you both got pregnant at the same time I mean that sort of thing doesn't happen but as I said before my other issue was at the time because I had no money but at that time I was lucky because I had a full grant to go to university I actually got a discretionary grant to do my uh, legal professional exams. But today, it's much harder for someone without financial resources behind them mm, I'm, I'm, to, to get that. And from what I know, the retention of female lawyers is, is a lot worse. So you see them dropping off. I interviewed a young female barrister yesterday. She was saying that you see them dropping off. The older they get is that they don't stay as lawyers like men do. 
Well, you see, but that's the, <laughs> then you might say, well, surely that means that those people back in 1976 who said, you know, it's not really the job for a woman are right. And they are not right. Um, but what we need to do is to change the way and the, the structures and, and the approach, not just of the, of the law profession, actually, but of business in general, to deal with what I think is still a, an issue. And that is how do you balance your work life and your family life. And that is not simply a women's issue because there are plenty of young men uh, these days who are also interested in not just being distant, remote father figures to their children, but actually actively Mm. engaging uh, with the and sharing the responsibilities of being a parent. And I think that there are ways and means of, of, of doing that. And we see it now. We see a lot more women coming up in the profession. It's still not good enough but the the challenge is the work-life balance I Mm. think and then the secondary challenge is that when I was starting there was a lot more legal aid available uh, but the cutbacks in 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 the legal aid fund has meant that many cases which 10 20 years ago would you'd actually have had a lawyer helping you with your case you just don't get that Mm. anymore and the additional strains that puts on on the legal system and the ability of, of lawyers to actually earn a living. Mm. The challenges that, yeah, that adds on to it. Well, that leads me, thank you, Shree, very neatly on to my second turning point that we wanted to discuss, which was the impact of technology and the balance of having four children and balancing this amazing career that you have. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yes, well, um, I first got involved, you can hardly imagine it now, but when I started in, 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 in the law, you know, Everything we did, the opinions we wrote, the uh, the work that we did for court, everything was done longhand, you know, written down. Uh, and then what would happen, there'd be a typing pool, and so your uh, work would go and it would be typed out, and the more junior you were, the further down you were in the queue. And that was that was the way thing, things were done. Um, and then in 19... 19- 88, I was pregnant with my third child, my daughter. And, uh, well, two things happened with Catherine, actually. The first one was, by this time, we had another woman in chambers, and it was she'd also got pregnant around the same time, so that two-pregnancy issue did arise. But she, she had had problems during her pregnancy. She was very sick and didn't feel very well, whereas I had been lucky enough to sail through my first two pregnancies quite easily. And so she then went and said excuse me, but I need some help with, um, because in those days, or well, they still are, barristers are self-employed professionals. And one of the things we have to do is we have to pay for our room and our desk and, and, and the expenses of running our practice. And we contribute to that jointly. And for the first two pregnancies, I continued to pay all my share of the expenses, even though for a few months at least, I wasn't able to actually work at yeah. all. Um, but she obviously having this problem throughout her nine months was finding it very difficult and so uh, it was agreed that she would have uh, she wouldn't have to pay this chamber's rent for a certain amount of time so I turned up and said oh well actually you know I'm pregnant as well can I have that as well now it wouldn't happen today because now the rules it's professionally not permissible not to make concessions for women but that was that that was a change but the second thing that happened was that my chambers, just before I went to, to, to give birth, 
moved radically, as many chambers were doing from the time, from having a, a, a manual accounting system where the clerk would write down your fees and his percentage of that take in a book to having it done by on a computerized system. And as part of that, Chambers was given two, you probably even haven't heard of these, Olivetti PCs and a, a, a pr- package called WordPerfect version 5. Um, and of course, it, they end, turned up in Chambers and everyone sort of looked at them and said, what on earth are we going to do this? And I said, well, I'm off on my two-week maternity leave. And um, I, I, I learned typing as it happened when I was uh, a student. So g- give it to me and I'll take it away and see if I can work out what to do with it. Um, and actually, I did work out what to do with it and realised it could make a huge difference to the way I organised my work as a, as, as a barrister. Uh, two year, by, by two years after that, I've become chair of the bar's IT committee uh, and was very committed to saying we can use technology to transform the way we deliver services to our clients and to transform the way courts work. And of course, we have seen a revolution as far as that goes since. So that was my first um, introduction to technology. And I discovered that I actually was a bit of a techie and quite liked it. The second thing, of course, that happened is that I'd said that Tony um, had become an MP. He became an MP in 83 and obviously we got married. Uh, And his constituency is in the northeast of England, which was like 400 miles away uh, and we used to go up at the weekends and uh, I then as, as things went on started to get involved with early experiments with file transfers using modems uh, and again some of you who listen to this may be old enough to know what a modem is but it was very very revolutionary and exciting at, at, at the time um, and it really made a difference to me to be able to communicate, to be able to send files up to County Durham from London and backwards and forwards without um, having to worry about carrying a whole load of stuff with me along with the three children at that time and the uh, bag of groceries for the weekend shop and all the other things that we had to do as we were going up uh, as as the constituency family. It's, yeah, it's amazing because we so take all these things for granted now, but we forget that there was a, a time where you would have to physically go and, and take the files. Do you think we've gone a bit too far with technology, though? Because the from a lot of the interviews that I've done, all I hear now is how much people are sick of technology and they feel too connected and they, they don't have to have a conversation in real life. Have you also seen that as well? Well, I think for, for me, I still recognize it as a blessing but you're absolutely right of course there are always pluses and minuses and one of the minuses is now you can never really escape can you and I know I'm as guilty of it as many other lawyers so you know yes it's marvelous my clients can get me all the time (laughs) but you know sometimes you really don't want them to get you but it's a lot harder to pretend that you haven't noticed uh, that they want to get you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, of course, in those days as well, you know, we didn't even have mobile phones. Remember? 
So. It must have been a bit more relaxing, I can imagine. But there were, yeah. But then you had to write everything out by hand. So I mean, you know, there's pluses and minuses. Yeah. Well, now the very trendy thing is called offline forty eight, which people do on the weekends, yes, and they absolutely. go two days off, no technology, absolutely, get out into nature. Yeah, and it's 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 really really important, and and to make sure that uh, not just that you do it, but also that the people who work for you understand mm. that. Uh, they don't always have to respond yeah, it's those late night emails yeah. well I know that technology has been an important part of your foundation and I would love if you could tell me a little bit more about the foundation what inspired you and what you do today with it well absolutely and I suppose that's if you like is, is the third turning point so we roll on now to um, 2007 and Tony's standing down as, as Prime Minister and my thinking you know well what, what, do, I, what do I want to do and um, by this time, of course, I had been very fortunate to be able to travel around the world. And when I used to travel either with Tony uh, as he, on one of his prime ministerial visits or perhaps on my own, uh, I would find myself uh, often uh, going to meet both other lawyers, but also they would take me and meet uh, some incredible women. And what I realized there was that the women I was meeting, many of them um, were in the position, certainly a similar position to what I was in in uh, 1976 in relation to where they stood, first person in their family to to do something, perhaps the first person, the first woman to to become uh, an engineer or whatever it is within their within their, their communities. And some of them, of course, were in societies where they were probably more in the position of my mother and grandmother were. In other words, forced to leave school at 14, perhaps because they got married young or just because girls' education was not valued. Um, and I thought, you know, I wanted to do something uh, to help those women. And particularly, I was very keen on helping women entrepreneurs. Why? Because actually, as a self-employed barrister with my own legal practice I was to some extent an entrepreneur and you mentioned uh, I've always been interested in how we can deliver legal services uh, more efficiently and in new ways and you mentioned I set up Matrix Chambers in 2000 and then later on in 2011 Omnia Strategy so that and the foundation, I think I actually am a bit of a serial entrepreneur. I think you are. I think you can take that term. <laughs> Myself. So I wanted to help women entrepreneurs in these, the, what we call low and middle income countries, because I thought that we could really move the needle there. And that there's no reason why they would have to wait the hundred years it's taken, for example, it's been 100 years since women in our country got the vote and, you know, because now we know much better what works and what doesn't work. And, and let's use that to accelerate the progress, because I believe that if you can help women uh, earn their own money and stand on their own two feet, then they are able to make the choices that are right for themselves. And those choices are not only right for themselves, but they're right for their families, their communities, mm. and actually to the development of their country. It so, benefits everyone. So that's, that, was, that was the idea. And then I realized, you know, is technology only for the fortunate women like me in, in developed countries so that, uh, you know, all the things that I was able to do to make my life easier? Surely there must be a way of using technology 
to help these women too. Not least because I had noticed even then, and it's more so now, that you know you you were seeing more and more of of, of people in low and middle income countries using the mobile phone, mm. Mm. Uh, which I always say is the poor person's computer. It's their link to a much bigger world than that which is immediately around them. Yeah. So how do we how do we utilize that? How can we help women entrepreneurs make things happen and take it to scale and help it accelerate that progress um, by using technology? That was the impetus for the for the foundation and it's been our mission ever since uh, I think in that we use technology as a way of providing uh, training, business training services to women, helping them with access to mentors and networks that enable them to either set up a, a business or, if they've got an existing business, take it to that next stage. Mm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Did you, on the topic of mentorship, how important has mentorship been for you? And have you had the same mentors throughout your career? Have you had them always in a formal capacity or have you met people along the way in your journey? No, I think but most of my mentors have actually been um, more informal. Mm. Um, but, you know, we started off, and there is a tradition in any event in the way the bar is organised that the more senior members of chambers do bring on the more junior members of chambers. And to some extent, that is, in fact, mentoring. So it's always been something that was built into the, to, to, to the system. And though my pupil master wasn't able to get me into chambers, he remained a sponsor of mine and, and brought, recommended me to solicitors and, and, and uh, brought me into cases um, for many years after I'd left those chambers, which I was very grateful and then after that, the people who took me on, Freddie Reynolds QC was a huge uh, help to me. And later on, Michael Belloff QC. But you'll notice they all have something in common. They're all men. Yeah, well, I was going to say, <laughs> do you, um, have you had any strong female mentors? Uh, in, in the law, not so much because uh, I think I'd. I didn't say, but, you know, when I went to the bar, it was the first time the number of women had gone at the bar had gone above single figures. Mm. So it went from 9 to So they just 12%. weren't there. Now, there were some, yeah. uh, but many of them were young, like, like, like me, so weren't in a position, if you like, to, to be um, mentors. Now, there were, however, role models. Mm. And indeed, my first role model probably was Rose Halbron, QC, who herself was a, a, um, a young Jewish girl from... Liverpool, mm. who went on to become the first woman QC in 1949 and a very, very famous 
uh, daughter of Liverpool. My grandmother was a huge admirer of of Rose and used to go and watch her in the days when the entertainment was uh, uh, provided differently because people didn't have multi-channel TVs. Used to watch her plead cases in court. And I think subliminally that idea that one girl from Liverpool could make it in the law um, meant that I thought I could make it too. So she was not a mentor, but she was definitely a role model. And subsequently, you know, there always were, and there still are, I and mean, one can see that because uh, I was just reading today, for example, Heather Hallett, QC, who is now, well, she was QC, she's now a senior judge in the Court of Appeal, is about to stand down because she's reached 70. I mean, she was already uh, someone uh, who was pioneering uh, Brenda Hale, the uh, senior judge at the Supreme Court. Now, these were women that were already starting their career. So there were a few, mm. but I didn't personally know any of them then, though I do know them personally now. Um, but but how does the beginning. Yeah. How does the mentorship in your foundation work in practice and what impact have you seen it have um, on these women? I'm very proud of the mentoring programme because it goes back to uh, those days when I was thinking what to do it and uh, I, I, I would go around and I would talk about women's issues anyway. I've always um, taught, I've been passionate about women's equality and talked about it a lot. And often women, you know, I'd go and talk about it in America or here and people would come up and say, you know, what can I do to help? And I thought there must be a way of channeling that desire, not simply to give money, but actually to, to have a, a relationship, if you like, and really help somebody that, that we could channel. And so uh, when we set up the foundation, I thought, how do, how do we plug these two things together? And I was lucky because I'd written my book, speaking for myself. And Google asked me to go along. They, do this, they did this thing, I don't know if they still do, where they have authors come and talk about their books. So they asked me to come along to talk about my book. And at the end, in questions, I was saying, you know, I really want to see how we can use technology to link up these willing people here with women entrepreneurs who really could do with a mentor mm. and so they said well you know let's see if we can help you with that and that's that was the beginnings of what became our mentoring platform which we really first launched in 2010 with a little pilot with only 30 um, women mentees and uh, a mixture of I think at that point 30 percent of the mentors were men um, and it's now grown um, to, I think we now have reached 3,000 uh, pairs and, uh, or 3,000 people, sorry. Um, and um, the mentoring program covers over 100 countries from Mexico to Kazakhstan, from Pakistan to South Africa, from Vietnam to the Balkans, <laughs> for want of a, and so we're we're in all these countries. And the basic idea is it's hosted on a on a on a private platform, but it uses all the Google Google tools. And we train our mentors. So if you come and be a mentor for the Sri Blair Foundation, you will have training in mentoring skills and in particularly in listening. And we say to all our mentors, you are not there to solve the problems for the women. You are there to help them reach their decisions. Solve their own problems. And how they solve their, their, their own problems, which I think is, is very 
uh, important. And we ask our mentors who have to have at least seven years experience to give two hours a month to support a women entrepreneur using the internet. So whether it's text messaging, whether it's emails or a lot nowadays, a lot of it is WhatsApp conversations mm-hmm. or Skype. Um, uh, that's, that's how the relationship uh, works. But the mentoring platform, which I always envisage that one-to-one relationship, what's amazing about working with women anywhere, but particularly in, in low-to-middle-income countries, is they do things that you can't even begin to imagine because, because you're not in their situation. And, and what has been amazing about the mentoring platform is the way it's developed into a community itself. So the women don't o- only have the support of their mentor, but each of them, the mentor and the mentee, are also part of a, a, a global community. And we have various forums and chats and helplines, and we have a library of resource materials. We get interesting people to come and do uh, webinars, and the women can phone in and ask questions. So it's, it's, a, it's a real community. And even after the year, many of our um, participants remain on the platform and, and still participate and it's proved tremendously successful because I, I'm a great believer in evidence-based there's no point in doing something just because it makes you feel good you've got to work out is it making the a difference it. and so we, we we had a we actually got a, a proper survey done about what was happening and we found of the men just in this last year we, we looked 97% of our mentees gained business skills and confidence 95% improve communication skills, 91% gain new clients, 82% found ways of accessing new markets, 60% went on to hire employees, that was 974 new jobs were created. Um, and there was an amazing ripple effect. Uh, 86% of the mentees wanted to commit to help others afterwards, and 62% had already uh, done that. So that's just in, in, in a, in a core cohort of what, 600 women? Just this last year. In just this last year. Just this last year, so two lots of 250, so probably 500. Yeah, all right, so uh, 600 wasn't too no, far, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it wasn't just 250. Yeah, all right, 500 women. 500 women. <laughs> From this last, last year. I should also say mm-hmm. the mentee, the mentors also reported that it had changed their lives Mm. for many of them it had revitalized their interest in what they were doing themselves it had enabled them if not to develop new skills to rekindle old skills that they hadn't been using so much it improved their confidence Mm. in what they were doing um, so it, it really is a virtuous circle. So, Well, confidence was the word that I was going to use, as I feel as a female entrepreneur, confidence is the thing that we all struggle with yes. the most. And I imagine um, having a mentor in that formal capacity really is an amazing boost of confidence. Yes, because um, one of our mentees described it once, and it was in one of the reports uh, where we had it assessed. She said, my, my mentor is my invisible friend who walks alongside me on my business journey. That's lovely. And that is... Yeah, really, really lovely. And the real friendships are formed as well, which is amazing. What are some of the challenges of running something on a global scale like that? (laughs) Well, first of all, I have to make the point that I I do not run the foundation. Mm. I am its founder. I'm its patron. But the foundation is independent from me. So I'm not a trustee. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a board of trustees. 
and we have a, an excellent CEO. And we, you know, we started off with one, <laughs> two, three. We now have what twenty five uh, people in the foundation um, who it is their jobs uh, uh, to make sure the foundation runs. Mm. But like any charity, because mm. that's what we are, you know, one of the biggest skills is just making sure you keep the lights going, and yeah. uh, you know, and feel very strongly that because we're a, a foundation that works with women entrepreneurs, we ourselves need to demonstrate that we are entrepreneurial and, and, and to try and, and run the business as a social enterprise. Mm. Interestingly, a large number of our mentees are social entrepreneurs. Yes, they have a business uh, as well. They have a business, but that business has a large social uh, component. Um, so I suppose one of the challenges for me as 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 the founder and patron is to make sure I don't meddle too much. <laughs> <laughs> Allow them to do the great work. You've had such an amazing and rich career. What are you still determined to achieve? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm certainly not giving up yet. You know, the fact is, when I started as a young barrister and I started on this role and I was lucky enough to do some of the very early cases and even the later cases in relation to women's issues and women's equality, you know, naively you thought, well, we've passed the Sex Discrimination Act, the Equal Pay Act, you know, this will all be sorted, you know, and here we are, 40 years on, and it's not all sorted, and there are still many, many issues that remain, you know, we still have a pay gap, uh, we still have issues over sexual harassment, uh, certainly unconscious bias, if not actual bias, um, all, all of these issues remain the same. We, there's no country in the world where women have exactly the same opportunities as men. And there are many countries in the world where their opportunities are severely limited. There's over 20 countries in the world where a woman can't even take a job or leave the country without the uh, express permission of her male guardian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel very strongly that as long as women around the world are restricted, then no woman is really truly free. Yeah. Yeah, we have a collective responsibility, I suppose. We we do, and it's not just it's not just our collective responsibility, because if in the world there are still these attitudes out there that say women are second best, mm. then even though we think we're treated as though we're not second best here, somewhere in the lurking in the background is that idea. Well, maybe, maybe it could change. Mm. What do you think the government can do about these inequalities? How can we change it? Oh, well, look, I mean, the government can do a lot. And I'm very proud of the fact that my husband's government did a lot. You, I don't know if you even remember 97, but there, I was, do. A, I remember. there was a whole thing, was if you remember. about Well, you probably don't remember the Blair <laughs> Babes thing, but that was the first time there were more than 100 women MPs uh, due to the policy that my husband had Instituted, which was about all women's shortlist, to ensure that we got women's voices heard and represented um, in Parliament. And the reaction of many in the press was to scoff and call them all, you know, ciphers and Blair babes. So uh, that's not all that long ago. Mm. Um, the policies like the minimum wage has made a big difference to female employment. Uh, issues in relation to work-life balance, mm. uh, nursery education all of these things all make it all make a difference they're all something that the governments uh, can do and just recently for example we've seen the reporting that has now has to to give 
that big companies have to do about uh, the gender pay gap yeah. in their own uh, companies. And uh, you know, this is only in its second year, and uh, but what it is throwing up is some interesting uh, analysis about what's what's going on, and it's not a perfect measure by any means. But all of these things have been uh, driven by governments. Mm. Now, if you go wider than that and look at the countries where we're operating, you know, in some of these countries, they don't have any legislation preventing sexual harassment. Uh, in some, many of these countries, they don't have equal pay legislation. Mm. In some of these countries, there, there still are real difficulties about women owning property. One of the things we find with our women entrepreneurs in, say, some of the African countries where they're isn't a proper registered title to land. It's much more difficult for female entrepreneurs to raise money because they don't have collateral, because often people are looking for particularly land as, as, as collateral, and there's no proof of who owns the land, and the assumption is it belongs to the husband, not jointly to the husband and, mm. and wife. Again, these are all issues mm. that the laws uh, can change, and you can't change the laws without... Um, having the the right people in, in Parliament mm. uh, to do that. Yeah, the people who are championing these issues and, and really care about them. That's why female representation mm. really matters mm. and, and why actually I still am in favour of, of quotas and, and for women in Parliament uh, and also actually for women on boards. Yeah. But women on boards is not enough mm. because you've got to look at... Uh, where women are progressing to the executive, to the C-suite, and therefore one needs active policies to enable women to to um, progress in their careers. Yeah, well, it's about having a seat at the table, isn't it? And I think that's really important. Well, Cherie, thank you so much. You've been the most wonderful guest, the first guest of our season. Thank you so much for joining me. If people would like to find out more about the Cherie Blair Foundation, where should they go online? Oh, it's www.cherieblairfoundation.org fantastic forward slash mentoring if you want to be a mentor (laughs) thank you so much thanks for listening to she started it with angelica malan if you've enjoyed this episode then don't forget to subscribe rate and review and you can follow me on twitter at jelly malan my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.